that's an old image. The pixels are a bit outdated, but Genesis, if you can't see it from where you're sitting. This is our introduction to Genesis. The sermon series title is Creation, Culture, and Christ. We don't really know when the series will go on to. Jordan said, I at least expect you to probably be preaching Genesis into uh, August, I think it was. Uh, just for some housekeeping, one, chapters 1 through 11 will be a bit slower, and we will pick up the pace in chapters 12 through 50. So uh, just so you know. Also, there's a lot of new faces I have not seen in here before. I think a lot of you are family. If, they're, if you are just a first-time guest, uh, welcome to Cornerstone. We are non-denominational, but we are biblical. <laughs> Sorry, that was a joke. That's the best I got. It's all you get for today. So if you didn't find that funny, <laughs> you may not like the sermon. Uh, all right, turn to the first page of your Bibles. Genesis 1. I didn't put it up there just for the sake of uh, the length of the first chapter. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And let it separate the waters from the other waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were there above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind, on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which their seed each according to its own kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanses of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for the signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let, them be lights in the, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from darkness. 
And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swim with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Let's open in prayer. My Heavenly Father, one thing that just jumps out from your word, your inspired word, just in the very first chapter of the scriptures, is that everything you created outside of humans obeyed you and did exactly what you told them to do. And yet humans are the ones that you created in your image and your likeness. They were given the earth to rule over. And we chose to reject you. We're the only species that you created that rejects your word, that rejected your word. And God, we acknowledge that. We acknowledge that. That we are sinners, and we all fall short. And God, I pray that there would be a clear understanding after today's sermon that although every human has fallen short of the glory of God and has sinned against you, you, by grace alone, have provided the forgiveness for our sins through the death and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. May you create faith in us 
and help our faith, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you thought just reading Genesis 1 through the first couple of Genesis 2 was long, uh, you should actually be happy because usually I read through the entire book uh, in an introduction. But 50 chapters just seem too long today, so you're welcome. But as stated today, we begin our journey into the book of Genesis, the entire book of Genesis. Now, personally, Genesis is one of my favorite books of the Bible because it's our story. It's all of our story. It's the story of our beginning, where we came from. In it, in Genesis, we get to go all the way back through the family tree of humanity's history. It's the, it's the furthest we can go back. It, it's our, it's our, the most ancient ancestry.com that we can plug into. If you're familiar with ancestry.com, it's a website that you can go into, type in your last name and blood type, social security number, probably password, something like that. And it'll tell you, uh, it'll go further back to tell you where you're from. It tells you your roots. Genesis tells us our roots. It tells us humanity's roots. It goes all the way back to the very first humans that God created, that God created, and tells us that Adam and Eve are at the very top of our family tree. Love Genesis. Well, another reason that I love the book of Genesis is because I have a deep-rooted Conviction that all Christians should be able to read Genesis and see Jesus. Let me, let me elaborate on, on that, how to, how to read Genesis and see Jesus. I know many Christians are familiar with the famous Sunday school stories, such as the days of creation and Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and the fall, Cain and Abel, Noah's Ark, Abraham and Isaac, Esau and Jacob, and Joseph's brothers who sold him into slavery. We're familiar with that. What every Christian is not familiar with is how all of those stories are connected to Jesus. They all point to Jesus. But because some or many Christians aren't fully aware of how that connection is made, they They think that the Old Testament, including Genesis, is just of no value to them. It's of no value to Christianity. We've got the New Testament. What do we need that for? I want to say nothing nothing is further from the truth. The, The Old Testament and the New Testament are not two separate books. They're not two separate religions. The Old Testament promises and foreshadows what the New Testament fulfills. So God makes a promise in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he fulfills that promise. That promise is Christ. Which means that those those famous Sunday school stories that we learned as kids, that probably our kids are learning downstairs right now, they're not isolated from each other. They're moving forward and anticipating the coming Redeemer, the promised Redeemer. And that's Jesus. That's Jesus. He's the main character of this story. He's the main character of your story. 
And our story begins in Genesis. Now, for that reason, I would suggest Genesis is one of the most important books for any Christian to be familiar with. Because the, the entire book of Genesis stretches, expands into the rest of the Bible, all throughout the entire rest of the scriptures. Without at least a basic knowledge of Genesis, the rest of the Bible, including the New Testament, including the Gospels, including the letters of Paul, without a basic knowledge of Genesis, it's not going to make much sense. Because not, not only do the New Testament authors refer back to the people in Genesis, but the New Testament authors also get a lot of their theology from the book of Genesis. So if you want to understand the New Testament, you must get yourself acquainted with the book of Genesis. I'll say that again. If you want to understand the New Testament, you must get yourself acquainted with the book of Genesis. Along with the anticipation of Jesus, the coming of Christ, which is in Genesis, it begins in Genesis, Genesis also provides us with answers to humanity's most basic and fundamental questions, such as, what is the purpose of our existence? Who or what created us? The Bible wastes no time at all, as we read this morning, answering that question. And the very first verse of the Bible claims God is the one who created the heavens and the earth. God is the one who created humans 20 verses, 20 verses later. God created the universe. God filled the universe. And we're part of that. So, just within the very first chapter of Genesis, it presents us with a biblical worldview, which is technically the title of the sermon, a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. I, I emphasize on biblical worldview because it, could, it should come as no surprise that the culture of our day is in complete opposition to a biblical worldview. And the hostility begins with acknowledging there is a God and he is the one who created all things. The Psalms say, only the fool says there's no God. Only the fool. And yet, in every secular institution, including our public schools, that is rejected that God created all things. And instead, what is taught in secular institutions is that all things were created out of a ball of gas by chaos, by chance, that just began with an explosion. We see in Genesis 1 that the Bible says, no, all matter was purposely created by God. 
And it was spoken into existence. None of creation was chance. It all has purpose. And that includes every one of you today that was created by God. You have purpose as well. Here's an easy point of application. Well, what's my purpose then? Obey God. Obey the will of God. Follow Jesus Christ as Lord. That'll keep the rest of your life. It's a reality that we, we need to get our head around that God doesn't make accidents. God does everything intentionally. There's not one of us, not one of you, not one person who has ever come into existence which God did not determine. Which, which implies what? Well, there's never been a pregnancy that surprised God, not one. We'll get further into that in a different point. Moving on from creation, the further, just the opposition to creation, the further we get into Genesis, the greater the gap becomes more evident between society's ideologies and God's design. At least I hope it's evident. I hope it's evident. Because here we are today in modernity where the fabric of our society is at complete odds with God's created order. We've gotten so far from God's design for humanity that the the very notion that there is even some sort of standard of truth left that's tangible which could, could somewhat return us to normalcy. Any standard of truth has just disappeared. And we may be currently living in a time where we have never seen such opposition to truth, objective truth, being viewed as the standard to maintain a functioning society. So let me, let me state that plainly. Why is the world in complete chaos right now? Because it has rejected a biblical world view of God's design. That is why. And don't misunderstand me. Since Eden, since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, man has challenged God's word. That ain't new. We, we ain't creating something new with rejecting what God has stated as truth. Humanity has always rejected God's word. That's, that's not new. But now we live in a world where every ideology is accepted, no matter how insane it may appear. Why? How, how does it last? How did we become a society where any and every ideology, no matter how insane it sounds, comes to be the standard for living? I'd say one of the reasons is because we no longer require anyone to substantiate or give evidence to their claims, to what they believe. How could we? 
Because we don't believe in objective truth any longer as a society. And the consequence of that rejection of truth has turned us into a society where whatever is my reality becomes your reality. And what's your reality becomes my reality. And even if someone can show us contrary or evidence, evidence contrary to my perceived reality, we don't care about the evidence. We actually value now a person's feelings more than we value the evidence that contradicts it. If you're familiar with Carl Truman, a Christian author, which I think we're going to put some of his books up there if you're interested in reading them, he, he summarizes a lot of what I just said by just saying we're living in a strange new world. Of course, as we read, the beginning of Genesis reminds us that the world was not created this way. So, being that this is an introduction sermon, we should briefly observe some of the background to Genesis. I'm going to give you a breather before I get into my preaching points, because I don't know where everybody stands today. So, uh, yeah. So let's observe some of the background to Genesis so that we all have a better understanding as we go through it for the next 17 years. (laughs) All right, you're listening. Good to know. Okay. Background to Genesis. The title in Hebrew, the book is called Bereshit, which means in the beginning. The word Genesis itself is actually Latin for origins, which seems proper because Genesis is a book of origins. Who wrote Genesis? Quick answer, Moses. It's not a hard conclusion to arrive at because the first five books of the Bible are known as the Torah, the law, or literally identified as the book of Moses. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament, which both support Mosaic authorship. I don't know if I... Nope. I'll just read a couple passages so you don't just have to take my word for it. Exodus 17, 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this, write this, Moses, for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua. Numbers 33, 2, Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord. Joshua 1, 7 through 8, be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Again, the law is the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And Moses even claims his own authorship in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 1.1, he says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. And following up in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. A prophet like who? A prophet like Moses, the one writing it. Moving into the New Testament, Matthew 8, 4, and Jesus said to him, offer the gift that Moses commanded. Mark 12, 26, but concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? John 7, 22, Moses gave you circumcision. And they said, well, what's circumcision? Well, you got to read Genesis to find out. 
Acts 3.22, Moses said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me. Well, that just substantiates Deuteronomy 18. Finally, John 1.17, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Okay. That was the short and abbreviated version, by the way. Date, Genesis was written. First, we should acknowledge that Moses wasn't alive during any of the events of Genesis. Okay? Which means the Genesis account had to be passed down to Moses. And I don't know how. It was either passed down by oral tradition. They memorized it and they taught it to their children. Imagine that. Right? An unknown scribe, somebody was taking notes. Or God himself inspired Moses to write down the events of Genesis. We see all throughout the first five books, God always says, Moses, write this down. Moses, write this down. Moses, write this down. So it's not that weird to think that, well, it wouldn't be that unusual that God would say, hey, by the way, I want you to write down the entire history of humanity and the call to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So, with that being said, if you hold to an early day of the Exodus, which I do, God would have delivered the Hebrews out of Egypt around 1446 B.C. And since Moses died 40 years after the Exodus, around 1406 B.C., it most likely would have been written in between 1446 and 1406 B.C. Structure of Genesis. Why do you care about learning the structure to Genesis? Now, as one of my professors said, knowing the way a book was assembled, a book of the Bible was assembled, is half the battle to understanding what the book is about. So understanding the structure, it just makes us better Bible readers. That's it. That's why we're going through background, so we can read the Bible more clearly have a greater understanding. So on a large scale, Genesis is broken up into two sections. Genesis 1 through 11, creation, the fall, the flood, and scattering of nations. And then the second is Genesis 12 through 50, the patristic history which highlights the lives and calling of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. That's on a large scale. On a small scale, the whole book of Genesis is broken up into ten subdivisions. Each marked by the beginning with the same Hebrew word or phrase, toledot, which is translated into English. These are the generations. These are the genealogies. Or these are the accounts of. Here's those references. I'm not going to read them all because I almost just did. Okay, now I know. Much as much as you do, that the genealogies in Scripture in the Bible, they can be a dry read. But they're important. And they're there for a reason. And one of the, mo one of the primary and most significant reasons for genealogies is because what Genesis and the rest of scripture but specifically Genesis what Genesis is going to do it's going to narrow down all of humanity into one specific family 
And that one specific family is who the Messiah is going to be born through. So, so, so you say, what about everyone else? Uh, where do these people come from? The Bible doesn't care about your questions. Where do these people come from? It already answered that. God created them. The family and the humans that the Bible was concerned about most is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and the family he's going to come through. And the, geneal- the genealogies give testimony that this is the seed, the lineage, who he was born through. That's why the Gospels pick up on it, because it's important. So as you read through Genesis and you come up on the phrase, these are the generations of, whatever your translation says, Hopefully that will serve as a reminder that the book of Genesis is giving you the family lineage regarding who the Son of God is going to come through. The eternal Son of God. Themes. I'm not going to go deep into themes. Just some of the major themes we're going to explore throughout however long it takes are creation, sin, and the fall, blessing, Offspring and descendants, the promise of land, redemption from the curse, covenants, providence of God, and the calling of Abraham and the promise of his blessing. We'll spend a lot more time as we go through those in Genesis, but the three main topics that we're going to address in this series and keep emphasizing on, and that we're about to look at right now, is culture, sorry, creation, culture in Christ. Point one. Genesis is about our creator. Genesis is not primarily focused on creation alone. Mainly because it wants us to know who its creator is and acknowledging God as its creator, acknowledging God as our creator, as the creator of all things has a few implications for us today that that actually will provide us with some application. So number one, because God created all things, he's free to do with his creation as he wills. God can do whatever he wants. Now, that may seem like a no-brainer, right? Sure, he's God. He can do what he wants. But how about on a practical level? Are we as quick to believe that God can do whatever he wants when things aren't going his way? God, why are you doing that? I don't like that. Do you believe God is free to do whatever he wants? What about when you find yourself in a situation that feels unfair or unjust do you still believe God is good do you still believe God is just do you still believe that everything God does is intentional and purpose and for your good do you believe that like Joseph believed that when his brother sold him into slavery Maybe you don't. Maybe we will never find ourselves in the same situation Joseph did. 
But whenever you do find yourself in an unjust circumstance, what do you believe about God? At that point, do you acknowledge, as Joseph did, what you meant for evil, my brothers, God intended for good? That includes the sinfulness of others. God uses that for good. God used the sinfulness of others to put his son on a cross. And that turned out for our good, didn't it? Because our sins are forgiven. What? They intended for evil. God intended for our salvation. Joseph has good theology. We're going to see that. So do we acknowledge God does all things for good according to his purpose? In an unjust situation or does our faith dwindle in God when we face an unjust situation? The distinction between God and his creation means he's free to do as he pleases. Or as Paul says, the Apostle Paul says, the potter, right, he has the right to do whatever he wants to do with the clay. And our application to that is to respond to whatever the potter does in obedience and faith. Number two, because God is our creator, We're indebted to obey him. I mean, God may be free to do whatever he wants, but we're not, right? Yet yet, somehow, our own hearts, the, 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 the heart of humanity has come to the conclusion that we don't have to obey God. We're completely free to do whatever we want. We're completely free to believe whatever we want. So what if God said it? I don't like it. And therefore, I'm not going to do it. We sound like little spoiled children who, who think they don't have to listen to mommy and daddy. Children, the children, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And adults... Yes, we have to listen to God. If we have a proper understanding that because he is creator, we owe him our allegiance, then the application is simple. Give God complete reign over your life in every decision you make, in everything you do. Yeah, what you turn on TV today, this afternoon, make sure God approves that decision. How you speak to your wife, how you treat your husband, make sure that honors Christ. Every single thing we do should be to the glory of God. He should have reign. He should have jurisdiction over our decisions. Let God be the one who calls the shots. Number three, not as intense. Creation is meant to cause us to worship to adore, to admire, to marvel, not as a means to the end at creation, but to marvel at God, the one who created it, the artist himself. Have you ever been to an art gallery? Right? You see the, the, all the paintings in the art gallery. What does every single one of them have on it? Well, mostly every single one. It's got a signature of the artist, of the one who painted it. 
And, 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 it, and it tells you, when you look at it, that, that that who created that masterpiece. That's what the signature does. And the work of art itself reveals something to us about the one who painted it. Which means, in every piece of art, we get a glimpse into the person who made it. Love one. The Bible says creation is supposed to do the same thing. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Which means creation is a signature of our creator. He signed it with his glory. And his masterpiece reveals something about him to us. Creation is designed to point us toward God. So our application is to acknowledge the one who holds the canvas in his hand. Point two. Genesis is about our culture. This will be the unpopular point for culture. Application. Biblical worldview. Every culture should be shaped and cultivated by a biblical worldview. Every society, every people group, everyone on the earth should be shaped and cultivated by a biblical worldview. Which means... Practically, we should be shaped by God's word and live according to his standards. That should be the fabric of every society. And that's the only way we're going to flourish. That's the only way humanity is going to flourish. Of course, as we open the doors into Genesis, which, which, which lays out what humans should treasure... It's actually the opposite of what we see valued among our fellow citizens. It's completely opposed. It's can, God's standard, God's decrees, his design is completely perverted. And, and amazingly, it only takes three chapters of the Bible to see how great the perversion actually is and has become. We'll just look at a couple verses. Genesis 1.27. God created man in his own image, male and female. He created them. There's two genders. They're identifiable. They're determined at birth or even in an ultrasound. At least they used to be. Not anymore. Now we live in a culture who allows a person to decide what sex they are. And, and it's solely determined by however a particular person feels. So, 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 so as a man, I can say, today I feel like a woman. Okay, but you're not. 
and 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 I, and I'm I don't know any other way to say this, but a person's feelings does not provide evidence contrary to their chromosomes. Genesis 1:28. God blessed them and said to them, "Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth." Procreation is God's decree. It's simple. Have babies. Every here, but, but here's the implication: every life is a blessing. He blessed them and gave them life. And every life should be protected. That doesn't matter if it's in the womb or if it's an elderly person. Every life should be protected. Every gender should be protected. Every race should be protected. Every people group should be protected. They've been made in the image of God. Their life is a blessing. Yet, our society fights to pass legislation that says life is only a blessing if it doesn't interfere with my prosperity. Or... Life is only a blessing if I determine the baby will not be a burden. Now, no, biblical worldview says every life God created is created in his image and has value and worth. And the application is easy. Treat every life as such. Treat every person as they were created in the image of God because they were. Genesis 2, 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is the beginning, the institution of marriage. Of course, it doesn't just say that in verbatim, but we see Paul pick that up in Ephesians 5 and use this passage for marriage. We see that the institution of marriage here in Genesis 2 was created by God. That much is clear. And therefore, because it's, the institution of marriage is created by God, those who want to participate in the institution of marriage must abide by his rules. Marriage is only, be, only to be done between a man and a woman. And we see that they are to remain, hold fast to his wife, don't leave her, don't let her go, don't divorce her. They must remain together until death. A homosexual marriage isn't just a secular operation. That's crept into the lives of professing Christians as well. Of course, if we're tempted to think that heterosexuals are free from marital critique, then all we have to do is look at the divorce rate among professing Christians. And, 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 and that alone will show us that the sacredness of marriage, which God instituted, has been in serious decline among evangelicals. Marriage is to be honored. We'll get into that in Genesis 2. Finally, Genesis 3, verse 1. The serpent said to the woman, here we go, did God actually say that? Should have ended the sermon right there, but then we wouldn't have went into the gospel in point three. Because a society opposed to God's design 
can be summarized by this one act of defiance, this one challenge to the word of God. Did God actually say that? That's where it all begins, loved ones. When a society questions the word of God, it will inevitably lead to their rejection of it, and that will in turn lead to their destruction. It goes back. Why is society the way that it is today? Why is the world in the shape that it's in? Because we reject a biblical worldview. It ain't my biblical worldview. Okay? This isn't, this isn't my message. This isn't what Pastor Timothy or Timothy thinks. This is what the word of God says. And I'm just here to say this is what God says humanity should be doing in order to flourish as a culture, as a society. So when, 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 when we show defiance to the word of God as a people and we reject the word of God, you know, we find ourselves living in a chaotic culture which resembles, well, nothing of God's intentions or a biblical worldview. And I, may I suggest to you this morning that that, loved ones, that's where we find ourselves today. Now, please don't think what I'm saying. This, this is uh, heart application. Don't think what I'm saying is that we need to become more aggressive in these views and fight some type of holy war among our society. I'm not saying that. Nor do we need to treat those with opposing views unkindly. Let me repeat that. We do not need to treat people with opposing views who even reject God's mandates or even reject God's son. We don't need to treat them unkindly. I know it's hard and I know the passion stirs us up. Sometimes when I'm trying to have a conversation, I get so choked up in my throat. That's how you know I'm nervous. If I'm like, like I got something there. I get it. I get it. And you want them to believe. You should want them to believe. If someone's house is on fire, you want to tell them you need to get out of there. It's important. Their situation is eternal. But that doesn't mean we need to be unkind. We must gently instruct our opponents with the reality of God's word. which It says, listen, anything... Anything that goes against God's standard is sin. Anything that goes against God's design is sin. And every one of us has gone against God's design. We have all sinned. All of us know what it is to go against what God has said. But, but we're, we, we don't enter these conversations so that we can win an argument. We enter into these people's lives so that we can win a soul. Which means when we face these uncomfortable discussions with our culture, and they are uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable preaching this. You know why? Because even I am so desensitized to our current culture that it feels weird to say these things in front of a church of God. When we face these uncomfortable discussions with our culture, we must not only point them to the truth and the standard of God's word. 
we must also bring them as close as we possibly can to the Savior in God's word. And we do that by sharing the message of Christ, which is our final point. The book of Genesis is about Christ. This is our conclusion. John 5, 45 through 46, Jesus says, Don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. He's saying this to the religious leaders of his time. He says, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, because Moses wrote about me. Moses wrote about it. There we go. Jesus just said Moses wrote the law. You can just erase all the scriptures I added earlier, and you can just, if Jesus says it, that settles it. But the climax of the passage isn't that Jesus claims Moses wrote the law. What's remarkable is what Jesus is telling the Jewish leaders. He's standing there. In, in, in the, the religious scholars of the day, and the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the priests. And he's saying, you see this Bible? You know that law, that scroll you just read from? Yeah, that's about me. Moses wrote about me. What, what Jesus is saying is precisely this. When you read Genesis, when we read Genesis, Jesus is the one who will bless the nations through Abraham. Jesus is the one who provided the ram to be sacrificed for Isaac. Jesus is the one who wrestles with Jacob. Jesus is the one who rescues Hagar from her distress. Jesus is the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Oops. That point would have made a lot more sense if I had the scriptures up there. We've been here for an hour already. Let's just keep it going. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. That promise was made to Abraham. That's Christ. The offspring is Christ. New Testament tells us that. Genesis twenty-two thirteen. Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham named that place the Lord will provide. The Lord Jesus Christ provided the sacrifice, the ram. Interesting, he's going to be the sacrifice provided as the lamb. Genesis 16, 11, the angel of the Lord said to Hagar, you have conceived and will have a son. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your cry of affliction. Jesus rescues even Hagar in her distress. In Genesis 3, 15, God said to Satan in judgment at Eden, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he will crush your head. Jesus is the one who crushes the head of the serpent, and he did it by dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Because as the New Testament tells us, death no longer has a sting because Jesus rose from the dead. And for us who believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, we too will be raised from the dead and will be with our Savior for eternal life. Jesus would even be saying, I'm the one who created the heavens and the earth. The Apostle Paul explains that in Colossians 1. He says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. For everything was created by him. That's what public schools need to teach. 
in heavens and on earth. Jesus created everything visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. Why were you created? For Jesus. Who were you created by? Jesus. And what's even more amazing is what Paul says next in relation to creation. Verse 19, God was pleased to all, have all his fullness dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile, to reconcile everything to himself with the things on earth and things in heaven. Wait for it. How did God decide to reconcile all things, including sinners like us, to him? By making peace through the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross. Paul says the one who created every society who rebelled against his decrees, rebelled against God's decrees, came down as man in order to die for the rebellion. He didn't wait for the world to fix it. He came down and took the world upon his shoulders and died for it on the cross. That's the message of Christ, loved one. The sinless Son of God came to forgive you for all of your sins, but, but the only way that could be done was him shedding his blood for you. So, Genesis begins by asking us to imagine a God so powerful that he can speak the entire universe into existence. And the Gospels, the Gospels begin by telling us to imagine the same God so powerful, yet so loving that he also came down to die for the sins of the world that he created. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your gospel may be concealed in Genesis, but you've given us more to help reveal your word and to understand that Christ is foreshadowed, that Christ is promised, that this big size sin problem that we have as humanity that we can do nothing about, it wasn't just solved 2,000 years ago. It was planned to be solved even before the foundations of the earth. Christ has always been coming. And God, I pray that those here today would believe not only the Christ came, not only Christ is creator, not only does Christ make the decisions on how we live, but the Christ came and died for them, paid the penalty for their sins so that they may receive his reward of eternal life and that glorious inheritance that we are yet to even find out what that means. In Jesus' name, amen.